I'm ready. Yeah. Three, two, one. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Sinister Cromcast. My name is Luke. My name is Jonathan. My name is Joshua. And you are joining us for uh, uh, a 16th season. Whoop, whoop. We're moving along. Mm-hmm. We're opening up a new road. There's vistas in front of us, and I'm glad that I have my two companions here beside me because what's the title of this this road that we're embarking on? The road of companions. Oh, you gotta have companions on the road. It's very companionable. You're following like the Warren Ellis title rule, right? Isn't his whole thing about like the title has to appear in the story at some point? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I like that. I like. It. I also like the new adjective, sinister Chromecast. <sighs> We're, we're sinister dudes. It fits in with Sinister 16. <laughs> sinister 16. We're on uh, the, the Road of Companions. We're addressing wondrous tales of adventure and quest by one Tanith Lee. That's the, the content that we're getting into this season. We're, we're addressing a new author that we haven't read yet, guys. It's going to be a, a cool, quick dive. Or this not? is exciting. Yeah. yeah. I've only really read um, Tanith Lee's... A uh, story called the Gorgon, and that's it in terms of my my Lee exposure. So yeah, it's going to be fun digging in. I have a big old goose egg. No, goose egg? Lee exposure. This is your first. It's that shocks you. No, it's, no, <laughs> I, I knew that coming into this. Uh, and I have I have more Tanith Lee under my belt. I got to say, I got a big old uh, like lit crush on on Tanith Lee. I think she's okay. I think she's the bee's knees, and. Uh, I'm excited to talk about these two stories. I think it'll be a fun, a fun uh, sh- mini season. I don't think Light- we can call it a mini season. Lightning season. It's just we're. It's like it's the end of summer at this point. We're gonna be taking a quick dip in the pool. We're just popping in, popping out. Mm-hmm. It's gonna start getting cold at night here pretty soon. Thank God. We need to get. We need to get out. <laughs> we need to get back in the house because it gets dark pretty soon. It's true. And things come with the night that no sane man would welcome. That seems to be an allusion to Cromtober? Perhaps. Mm. We'll keep I, that one in our back pocket. Yeah. I also have here, uh, I guess we're kind of doing a little bit of a continuation from our last season, too. So uh, not to to jump too too far out and around. I know we're going to talk about uh, the Blackgate uh, website multiple times over the season just because they have a plethora of different Tanith Lee articles. If anybody's interested in picking up various books uh, written by Tanith Lee and you don't necessarily know where to start, the Blackgate has uh, provided a lot, a lot of love to her over the years. Uh, but... Uh, Greg Melee wrote at one point, I got here in air quotes, this is uh, from a recent 2020 uh, little essay that he penned about her, that she was goth before goths. So <laughs> while we just finished up the, the gothic road, we're going to be getting into a, a semi-gothic but very mythic sword and sorcery season, I feel like, here. Okay. And yeah, it should be a nice little segue into Cromtober. I'm excited. Getting creepy, getting spooky already. I'm getting. <laughs> um, so before we get into the meat and potatoes of this um, journey down the road, what are you guys drinking in your cups there? Well, you would know you are the founder of today's drinking feast. The founder of the feast. Uh, <laughs> uh, in that case, then, I've brought Evan Williams since 1783. Black yeah. label. Black label, yeah. This is the 86 proof. Ain't nothing wrong with that, man. Nope. Put it in a cup. Put it on some ice. 
Go to town. It's a standby. It's brown liquor. Yeah. yeah, it is. That's, it is, is dependable. You uh, have ice. Right. I have ice. Maybe you have some ale aid in there. I have a little ale aid in there. Yeah, and then we got some seltzer water with the Luke's Yep, here. over on this side. I have to admit, uh, I have a ratio of probably two parts Evan Williams to one part benchmark because that's what I had in the, like the dredges <laughs> of my cup. But before we hit record, that was I did a little top off of, yeah. of uh, Josh's bottle that he brought. So I've got a mix of both Buffalo Trace and Heaven Hill Distillery uh, cheap bourbons in my glass, but it's all right. It's it's just right. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got a brand new Thermos Thermax low ball. Um, uh, little little sippy cup here. I like the look Which, of that, dude. Yeah, man. Uh, what's the what's the cap look like there? It's uh, it's a thermos cap. It looks like, like it'll would... be good for uh, party fouls and uh, accidents of all types. All, all kinds of all kinds of shenanigans. <laughs> soup during the day, bourbon yeah. at night. Bourbon yeah. at night. Yeah. <laughs> put your tomato soup in there for lunch and <laughs> heat it up and <laughs> and put you an ice cube and some bourbons in it. it sounds you, like we we're sponsored by thermos utility, utility cups. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Nice, dude. Uh, so we got that. I've got a couple uh, Rheingeists in my little my little pouch here. Uh, that's what we're drinking. You guys want to get into one things? Of course. I do. One thing. All right, John, do you have one thing? I do have one thing. I wasn't expecting to go first, but you like cast the eyes upon me. I did. I just cast a spell on you. You did. Uh, I'm going to have maybe kind of a weird one thing for our show. Uh, I I don't know if you guys have been following like history stuff, but this is the 50th anniversary of Watergate this year, of the break-in at the Watergate Hotel. I've always been really interested in the history of Watergate. I've listened to like maybe three or four podcasts about it and the downfall of Richard Nixon. Uh, and that led me to a book this year that just came out called King Richard by Michael Dobbs. And it is a deep dive into the 100 days after the discovery of the Watergate burglars. Uh, he has access to all of the different recordings that Nixon made of himself during all of this. And so he uses his own words to chronicle him and has some, I guess, supposition maybe where he guesses at what things got said in between so it's not a play but it kind of reads like a play uh you really get into nixon's head and i really liked it i think he's a the most impactful 20th century president that we had probably and not in a good way so uh i really liked going through it and that's my one thing for today <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> Thanks, <dude. Teach. laughs> yeah that sounds awesome yeah. kind of uh kind of eerie how History seems to repeat. Oh yeah, I didn't know if we were going to get into that. But uh, I'm just, that's it. Seems like it's a little on the nose. I mean, yeah, we're all thinking it. It's the elephant in the room. It is the elephant in the room, literally, because of the symbol of the the party that's shared. By two I wasn't, wasn't going to say that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, it's 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 hard to overstate. Real, I, you know, Nixon had really aimed. He's he could have been like our greatest political hero, really. Uh, he really was like the American dream writ large. He came from pretty much nothing. He was a, a son of a poor grocer and kind of scratched and clawed his way up to the presidency and had a really impactful career before becoming president and then got so paranoid he kind of 
pissed it all away. And uh, it's kind of America writ large, if you think about it. So it's uh, I just think it's really interesting. And we need to talk more about Nixon. And one tack on, I think maybe Josh has read, is uh, if you want just like a quick summary of the man, read Hunter S. Thompson's Gonzo Obituary. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nixon. yeah. Yeah, yeah. That summarizes a lot. Of <laughs> what, what? Yeah, what a wild ride that is. Yeah. So that's me. Let's pass the torch to Josh. Okay. Uh, I've been reading Dark Horse's uh, Conan comics. Oh, cool. Um, and I have been really keen... Uh, keenly paying attention to the uh, letters column. Okay. And there are two reasons. One, in the letters column, which you don't get reprints of if you get the trade paperbacks, you have to get the floppies for this. Um, There are uh, comics called The Adventures of Two-Gun Bob. Yep, yep. You know this. Uh Uh-huh. By Jim and Ruth Keegan. And I'm passing my iPad mini over to Luke so you can take a look at some of these. These are... Little, um, like, three or four panel comics, uh, sometimes maybe up to six, real short, that are um, artistic representations of letters that Robert E. Howard wrote. And they're by Jim and Ruth Keegan, and Rusty Burke has mentioned them on the show before. He mentioned The Adventures of Two-Gun Bob. I'd never seen it before. Um, But I have been really enjoying going through the... um, uh, Dark Horse Conan stuff and reading the letters column and in particular looking at the adventures of Two Gun Bob. Now, that leads me to a letter that I would like to read to you guys. See if you know who wrote this letter. It says, I'm really pulling for the new Conan comic to be a success, but I hate to see you falling with the alternate cover for Conan number one, second printing into the same old conventional depiction of Conan as steroid boy in a fur diaper and the babes in chains only further degrade the image. Kurt and Carrie have done their part to try to reimagine Conan and pull him out of the stale trap Marvel fell into. So it would surely be nice if you'd be more selective about the cover art. The other covers I see on the website, number zero through uh, five, look fine, but this Campbell thing is wretched. He may be the most popular cover artist in comics, but he's stinking up the joint here, and the way it's posed makes it appear that Conan is keeping the viewer from getting at the babes in chains, which implies that he is their captor. Not good. I got my first taste of Robert E. Howard with Conan the Barbarian number four way, way back, and I've gone on to develop something of a reputation as a Howard scholar. I'm currently series editor for Wondering Stars REH Library. I really do wish you all the success in the world with this book, but I hope you will in the future display the taste shown with Linsner's and Nord's covers and not subject us to anything else like Campbell's detestable image. Sorry to start off with a negative comment. I really did enjoy number zero, and I'm looking forward to receiving a copy of number one soon. I missed it at the comics shop here, but a friend is sending me a copy. I've met Kurt through the REH Inner Circle Internet Group, and he seems to have his heart in the right place, so I do have high hopes for this project being faithful to the creation of Robert E. Howard. Who wrote this letter? Mark? No, it's Rusty Burke. Oh, That's Rusty, Rusty Ding, 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 Rusty Burke. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I guess I kind of spoiled yeah. it by invoking him earlier. But uh, it's it's been really fun looking through these these letters. That's uh, awesome. Scott Alley is the uh, the editor, right, at this point mm-hmm. in Dark Horse's history. And uh, his his responses are, are pretty uh, well thought out. Um, they're, they're pretty... Uh, 
They're pretty good. I think they're pretty good responses. So That's Rusty awesome. Burke, Burke took J. Scott Campbell to the mat, basically. Yeah, I took him way. down. Yeah. It was it yeah. was uh, he uh, he ran down during the match and slammed him with a chair. <laughs> I was thinking that it was Finn initially, but then of course, whenever he mentioned the Wandering Star, I okay. we we've talked with Rusty about his association with that, and then Rusty, I think what he owned a comic shop right like he's mentioned that like he's been involved with the the comics industry so yeah at that point i was like oh that's rusty he's <laughs> he's getting getting the issues getting and getting salty yeah. on him uh, uh but yeah. anyway it's it's been fun uh mark that's awesome man. mark wrote in uh this is all really cool ephemera that is uh captured in these single issues of of conan so if you pick up uh i don't know what issue that is it must have been early on though um so if you pick up any early early issues of Conan uh, by Dark Horse, you're going to get some some interesting letters. All right. Are we passing the mic I'm to passing me? passing it back to you, dude. This guy. So with me, this guy, I'm going to pick uh, a book that I've been reading that I really do dig a whole heck of a lot. It's a weird one. I got a bookmarked here just so I get the name right. So my one thing is a book called A School for Good Mothers. You guys heard for this book? Heard of this book? Yes, I have. Seems familiar, actually. It is a 2022 debut novel by the American writer Jessamine Chan. Uh, this book is a head trip. I'm not through with it. I'm about a third to a half all the way through it. And it is... Uh, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a dark shadowing of, of what may be. It is, I think you could generally call it like just lit fic. Like it's, it's the kind of thing that, uh, lots of everyday people might be inclined to pick up. I wouldn't be surprised if this was on like lots of common, uh, like Reese Witherspoon's two reasons. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. I like, like middle-aged woman reading books in a book club type lists well it's funny you say that now, now that i mention it i think ashley has has mentioned that book as one that she okay read. yeah uh yeah it was it actually came to me from my friend jen across the street who's uh very much fits that description and her and uh my wife and one of the one of the girls around the corner uh they all like you know they talk about books and this is a book that came up they all hated it i had heard on a podcast that i like to listen to called the reason roundtable uh, Kath Catherine Mangue Ward had like sung its praises and I was jazzed. And when I found out that Jen had it, I was like, can I borrow it? And she said, yeah, sure. <laughs> like she's a, she's a big, big book collector and reader and she's super voracious, you know, somebody that keeps like, uh, not just a, a good reads, but like a blog, like a, a spreadsheet of here's the books I read and here's my fine scale 10 point ranking season. Oh, wow. so, like she's, she's a hardcore, like she's all about her reading. Uh, so she, she had it and, uh, and I've been reading it and I'm digging it a lot. It's, it is scary. You're the opposite side of the coin of all of them then. Well, I'm not going to lie. The book, I don't know if I've read a book in quite some time that's, it's pissed me off like this thing. Like oh, okay, it intentionally okay. uh, jacks with you and just makes you angry because the the premise is that the I'm not spoiling anything here. This is the opening sort of like salvo is that there is a young mother. Uh, she's not young. She's actually no. She's not young. I shouldn't say that. She is a a a, a career woman mother 
who is recently divorced and is so wrapped up with being both a mom as well as, you know, trying to keep the lights on and stuff and dealing with the baggage of like a horrible husband that left her, you know, for a younger woman, that kind of story. Uh, and she accidentally, maybe, I don't know at this point, maybe it's <laughs> an unreliable narr- narrator, but walks out of the house for like a quick hour to like go get some papers at the office and leaves her, leaves her like infant child at home, like her, her one year old. And of course that's an unforgivable, like horrible thing on one side, but at the other side, if you've ever dealt with the life of having a one or two year old and all of the, the stresses of lack of sleep and career and life and everything crashing down on you, you can kind of imagine, right? So it's, it tugs at your heartstrings and also intentionally makes you very, very, very mad for how things play out. Uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. I am sure it's going to be incredibly dark and not have a good ending for our bad mother. But I'm excited to keep reading it. Will you say that title one more time? So it's a school for bad mothers. Okay. I think is what it's called. Yep. No, I'm sorry. The school for good mothers. I jacked it around. (laughs) Uh, Our mother is not necessarily a good mother. It's called the school for good mothers. Okay. Yep. It's awesome. Anyway, that's it. Uh, So if if you want to read sort of a contemporary kind of cool, it's not a horror story. It's not a thriller and it's not a science fiction story, but it kind of steps into all of those zones and I'm digging it. Sounds right up your alley. Sounds awesome. Yeah. That's it. Put them all together. Put them in a pot. Stir them all around. I said this in our last episode. Let them simmer for 30 minutes. I think 30 minutes is the appropriate summer time. Yeah, man. Got to keep it at a burble. That's not a bubble. That's like not just no bubbles. That's the in-betweens where it's like. Got to get that glaze. Yeah, that's how the, the burble takes place in the pot. And you call that. One. One. <laughs> I'm sorry for the obnoxious. Don't. Pops. You were providing ASMR content to our listeners for free. Good. You have a pop filter on there, so it may not even go through. It might not. <laughs> what do you guys know about Tanith Lee? I'll tell you what, not a whole lot. Uh, there, there, there are things that, uh, like general things. Um, she's British. Yep. Um, she is. Up? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll say something that's that's true, and you say something. You make something up. Okay, go first. She's British. She is the granddaughter of Robert E. Lee. She is the first woman to win uh, the um, British Fantasy Award for Best Novel. She is so named because her dad was a leather tanner. I've reached the end of what I know. (laughs) (laughs) I... (laughs) I'm like, I see how this is playing out, and it's just getting uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, she's British. Yeah. She became what? Like, uh, I think a professional writer in the, the early 70s. Okay. Uh, before that, uh, Tanith Lee worked as 
a librarian assistant. I think that's one of the cool parts about her story that I read was, yeah, she worked in a library and I like the idea of a librarian then becoming a uh-huh. writer. Yeah. She was paying the bills, uh, but she, she made a go of it and was a highly productive uh, representative on the horror and the fantasy mm-hmm. and the SNS stage for decades. Right. Like basically throughout the seventies, the eighties, the nineties. And I think what's cool about Tanith Lee from what I know about her is she wasn't just one thing. Like she wrote children's fantasy type books. Mm-hmm. She wrote like whimsical stuff. She wrote super sexy and uncomfortable adult fantasy that had lots of, uh, things that made you think. And she did it all, man. Mm-hmm. I think that's super cool. The biography you sent us after I got done with it, I was like, this is somebody that would have killed it at like image comics. She would have had all kinds of cool, creator own series. She just she had a lot of wheelhouses she could work in. I thought it was really neat to go through all this just what you were listening. Yeah, I haven't read any of her more science fiction stuff. And she has a load, man. Like something like what, eighty or ninety novels? I think yeah. I, what did I write down here? Uh I wrote down and this is from Wikipedia, but I saw like across Blackgate they had comments about like seventy or eighty novels and she may wow. have been alive at that point in time. Uh but she wrote over seventy five novels for sure upwards close to 100 and then over 250 short stories and probably closer to 300 she wrote a butt ton so she was a presence within the genre she's anthologized uh she plays in a lot of arenas but i think the stuff we're talking about here is some of her early formative works that really kind of i think are as close to pure sword and sorcery that we can get so Mm. That's kind of why I picked it. I, it was both the package of having like a short book that was 200, 210 pages that we could knock out across like four episodes. And the fact that it was so like close to home for us. Yeah. So um, am I wrong in thinking that she lived until 2015? Is that when she passed away? Around Sounds right. Yeah. Um, and that that is, that is awesome. And I think that as I understand it, she was – um, productive and, and writing up close to the, the very end of her life. Absolutely. And I don't know if you guys remember it, but way back in our first season, we uh, had John R. Foltz, mm-hmm. who was on the show. Yeah, yeah. And he, uh, he's a huge champion for Tanith Lee. So she was alive at that point in time, like when we were doing our first Conan season and Foltz was, was on the show with us. That's bananas and to he, think about, isn't and it? Yeah. He, and he mentioned... Tanith Lee being, you know, a very formative po- like like person in his in his uh, you know development as a writer, and it's just it's crazy. So again, if you go to Blackgate, I spent no lie twenty minutes today. Originally, I was doing the search for the the tag for Tanith Lee, mm-hmm. uh, but then I ultimately I just put it into the search box and I sort of worked through like every post and like to his credit, John R. Fultz has loads of love and loads of uh 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 just like support for for this author Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of good information there like writing about how to be a writer early on like the history of the black gate's kind of a cool magazine like it was published you know online through like 2005 to 2010 there's a lot of there's a lot of like just generalized work uh, at that point in time, but from 2010 onward, so more than a decade, right? 
uh, like at this point going on to 15 years, we have a lot of different uh, reviews and showcases of a lot of things that have been out of print for a while. And there's loads of love again for Tanith Lee. So big props to Fultz for, for carrying the banner for this author and for the black gate for actually kind of like carrying the banner for this author too. Mm-hmm. Cause she's not somebody that necessarily has been lost, but she doesn't get the love that I think other people necessarily do at least within like, the genre that our podcast is working in. Yeah. I, I think you don't often um, like CL Moore certainly as part of the conversation, but it, right. it's, it certainly does seem like uh, the weird and the, the uh, sword and sorcery stuff that Tanith Lee contributed doesn't seem to be part of the equation. Yeah. And so like what Jessica, Amanda Salmonson, yeah. Amazon's right. So Tanith Lee is represented within the, the, the Amazon's anthology. Uh, but I think she's she's a contemporary, and yeah. she has uh, feet in kind of the that liminal space between horror and sword and sorcery. And I don't know, that's my jam. Put on the mascara, <laughs> dude. Like let's yeah, you, <laughs> let's keep on rocking, dude. You sort of alluded to that earlier. Like something that we're going to look forward to is that this is goth before goth. Uh, so is that one of the critical things about her? Like criticism or not criticisms? Like critical analyses of her is that she's goth before goth. What are some of her other strengths? I mean, I think that, uh, across the entire, what's the word? Do we say ouvoir or yeah, do we Uber. say over? Yeah. So across the, the entirety of, of Tanith Lee's like catalog, mm-hmm. she is an adult fantasist. Like she, she's written for children and that's part of what she does. But she was somebody that relatively early on was embracing like gender, gender queer writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can find all types of sex in her work. Uh, she has, uh, very kind of heady writing style hopefully you guys picked it up on the front the front half of the story that we're talking about today like she writes she's a boss like she's a she's a uh what's the the german word instead of minch like instead of instead of that i don't don't know know. (laughs) but whatever whatever the 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 alternative is uh that is what tanith lee is she writes like a sword and sorcery like goddess I think, and especially in this first story, it is so much blood, thunder, uh, magic is evil, the horror of battle, but we don't have to talk about all the specifics of battle and just like, there's all of the representative facets of sword and sorcery gets boiled into this, the, the, the companions on the road story that we'll talk about a little bit here in a minute. Uh, so she writes like a boss, but she does write in <clears throat> in like a a little bit of an elliptical style. Like she can be a little bit vague with how she describes things too. So that was one thing I saw in one of the articles you sent around was that she is too brief. I think is what it said. Yep. Uh, too succinct maybe, and that people were wanting more from her descriptors. I find that interesting that that's a criticism when it's something that we kind of usually hold up as. A positive within the genre, at least within our genre, for yeah, sure. But yeah. like, so I would ask you guys this, and we'll. So, what's his name? Kachil, Kachil. Mm-hmm. Uh, he 
he, by the time, like with the story that we're talking about here, he ultimately croaks at the end of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Like halfway through, halfway through yeah. the, the companions on the road, but he dies. He gets mad real quick, and when I say mad, I mean that in the the, the context of he's like goes he right. kind of he goes bonkers. Yes, he goes yeah. bonkers. How did that play out for you guys? Like, was that telegraphed? Telegraphed? You mean in a negative way? Like, oh, like, I know like, that magic's at play. Was it effective? Like, oh yeah, I thought okay. it was really effective. Okay. I thought it was like okay, something weird is at play here. Like uh-huh. they've they've found an artifact. Uh, he's getting loopier and loopier and becoming like enthralled with mm-hmm. the guy that he didn't really get along with, Feluce, I think is uh-huh. how we're calling him. Uh, and to me, it, it was very sword and sorcery. Like he's, he's gripped by madness. What did you think, Josh? I thought that initially he seemed real jittery and, and kind of, uh, like his, his mouth moved faster than his brain did. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and so when he steals the uh, coin purses from um, Felucci and uh, H- Havor, is that how we decided yeah. to say? Um, and and runs away when he is finally apprehended. He's kind of babbling, right? Like he's he's kind of uh, you know don't, don't kill me, don't don't do it. Like he's 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 just kind of uh, spitting words. I think right. Um, he's your classic kind of weaselly thief that you see. In weasel, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and I, I think, I don't know. I was when on the back of the book, um, it says, uh, Cachil, the brigand, Feluce, the rogue and Havor, the gallant. And when I think brigand, I guess I think of someone who's like, you know, a, a highwayman, like who's going to like rob your stagecoach or, or whatever it is. Like this guy seemed more like a, a, a jittery cut purse to me. Um, but I think you're right. As we move closer into the, uh, the Citadel of, um, what, how do we decide to say the name of the town? Arville? Uh, Avilis. Avilis. That right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, as we move into there and he is relating from this map, like where the chamber is that this treasure house is supposed to be. Um, he's getting more and more kind of kind of jittery, and when the uh, the chalice itself is unveiled, it seems like there is a turn in him. He goes he goes there real quick, and yeah. I guess that's what I'm getting at with this is I think that character and that characterization, it, it, the people that have the gripe that she's not explicit enough in her prose, it's probably examples like that where you have some breadcrumbs of this character is going down this dark path, Mm -hmm. but it's not like explained that the individual has a, has a, has a, has a jerk or a shake that, that portends the, the, the fever that's going to set in. He doesn't feel psychic Uh, claws at any point. No, he doesn't. Yeah, that's right. He's not like, like seized up. With uh, staring with, off into the middle distance, yeah. and yeah, but, but I did think that he was characterized differently than either Feluce or Havor, like from the beginning. I just I think that Lee is a she's a grown ass woman writing a grown ass story, and and it's up to you, the reader, to kind of like to pick up the pieces, mm-hmm. and that and and that brief sort of delivery, at least within the stories that we're reading, I think I think it really works. So. I don't know. So that's one of the things that typifies her. So gender queer identities, uh, sort of adult themes and uh, writing that is a bit 
more uh, heady, for lack of a better word, or might be sort of broad and, and sweeping. I think those are the things that kind of typify her style. And she's dark, man. Like, she's yeah. not afraid to go there. To that end, how did you guys feel about Lucan and his uh, the, the end of his arc that we see in his life? It happens, man. Like he's a child soldier, right? Like, he's he's taken up his his sword he's he's been conscripted into the army or whatever and uh he begs Havor to take his meager salary back to his mom and dad back to the farm right uh because he thinks you know i'm not i'm not gonna survive right like we've all seen this character at the start of the world war one movie or <laughs> yeah. What, you yeah. Know? yeah i thought of actually like uh, that character and that characterization when i first read it struck me as very like uh and i know this that, that lee predates this but the, when I first read like uh, George R. R. Martin's mm. like Song of Ice and Fire, mm-hmm. uh, a, a bestering character in the way they're sort of portrayed, just the the frank, uh, gritty, medieval nature of 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 the world, and some element of pathos, and it's very quick and succinct. This character and like. I don't know. There's just a weight to it. Like it's that character is clearly just, just air quotes, a plot motivator, but Holy shit. If you want to put a plot, like having a child soldier, that's like, here's my, here's my coin purse. Exactly. Take it to my family. Please take these 10 copper pieces to my mom. (laughs) It pulls at your heartstrings, man. And it sets up just such a grand adventure. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I didn't necessarily think that it was, um, I don't want to misconstrue what you said. Like you said, just a character motivation. I, I didn't think it was cheat at all. And I'm not saying that you, no, you, no, I you agree. You're suggesting it. Um, but I didn't, I, I thought that this kid could live or die, which I think lends some gravity to the world that she's creating in, uh, like we always say, an economy of words. Yeah. It's funny the way this story is structured. And I guess we're already moving into the story itself. So, do you guys want to kind of kind of move that way? Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think so the spirit has seized us. Yeah. So so this story that we're discussing is called Companions on the Road. Uh, it was first published in 1975. Uh, the the sister to it that's within the novel, like the the not the novel, but the book that we're reading this the the Bantam paperback. Uh, the compatriot to it is the Winter Players, and it was published in 1976. So these were early on with her, her publication history. Uh, and so this story is mythic in its scope, and we've kind of talked about the main characters, but uh, moving kind of kind of into the the characterizations here, I agree. Like Lucon, that, that that boy soldier, he he's a plot motivator. But the one thing that I like about this story that I think is really cool and ties into an SNS uh, framework is that it moves like each chapter. There's a story to be told. Like the first chapter was introducing the city and the, the shitty foil of, of Feluche the second. And then the next chapter is, and by that time Lucon dies, right? Like Lucon dies. He's in the first chapter by the, in well, I guess we learn about his death during chapter two, maybe. Yeah. So uh, after the city falls. Yeah, and so we get him, and then we get the introduction of the the next guy who is the thief Kashil, mm-hmm. 
Uh, and by the time we get to the halfway point of the story, he croaks. Mm-hmm. But we have these character deaths that are kind of milestones. Mm-hmm. And as you say, Josh, like kind of circling it back around because I'm kind of meandering here. But those characters aren't just plot motivators like they they seem to be characters that might be around to stay but at the end of any given 10 to 20 page span then they're gone Mm -hmm. i i was honestly kind of surprised that our like one of our band of three has croaked at this point i don't know how you guys felt maybe it's telegraphed but he he's in a bad way it's not going well for him and we learn uh not directly, but sort of indirectly, I guess directly from the uh, the innkeeper, the tavern owner, uh, this chalice is not something that you want <laughs> right. necessarily, right? Like this is a cursed item of some sort. Yeah. So the setup is basically, hey, uh, Hakon, Havon, Havon, Havor, Havor, Avon, Avon, Ding dong. Avon Collie. That's what I was going Havor is uh, a bear lieutenant, a bear commander in the army. A king is sieging like a wicked witch's stronghold. And the army's there to chew gum and kick ass. And they're all out of gum. And they go in. They burn this whole place down. Now it's time to loot and pillage. Uh, Havor is not really into that. He's kind of the world-weary character. Doesn't really feel the war anymore. Resigns his command pretty quickly uh, in the story. And then he gets sucked into a heist where the uh, Feluche and him are walking around and they run into the thief. What's his name again? Kashil. Kashil. And they, he robs them. They catch him. And he's like, actually, let's go steal from the wizard. That was an accident. Yeah. I didn't even mean to take I, it from you. It's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's just a reflex at this right. point. I'm sorry. I didn't yeah. mean it. In my head, he's like the fast-talking uh, Steve Buscemi type character or something. Oh, that would be yeah. a great casting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I could see that. Uh, so they go and they steal this chalice. It's very obvious from the get-go, this chalice that's hidden behind Velvet is probably an ominous object. Oh, my God. It's yeah. alien. It's from another world. Right. It's the height of a three- or four-foot uh, right, it's, th- it's, 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 a three, it's a height of a three or four year old child, yeah. mm-hmm. but seems to be light as a feather, so that a girl could pick it up. Right, maybe we'll circle back around to that. Uh, it's called kid size, not because it's for a child, but because it's <laughs> the size right, of child a child. Size. Right. <laughs> yes, uh, and so they take it because they're going to sell it and get rich, and <laughs> but uh, not before Havor like says. Blood oath, bitches. Right. We, like, they, they pledge a blood oath. Yeah. And he is going to take his share and give it to Lucan's family. Like, that's his whole mission, right? Is let's, I'm going to get this money and then I'm going to go on to the next thing. Yeah. Uh, he's a very gallant man. I think gallant is a good descriptor from yeah. the back of the book. Uh, but from there, obviously, this heist is going to unravel and they end up in another town and things don't go well. Yeah, so so let's take it this way, if you don't mind. So yeah. we've already talked about uh, the death of Kashil. Right. We've already talked about the death of Lucan. Uh, let's distinguish our two characters. So there's the protagonist and what I'm going to call the foil. So yes. Feluche the second, the d bag, <laughs> a sadist as like I think he right. very much embodies a lot of like those types of tendencies. In contrast, it with our our main dude Havor. So, so Havor is, in a lot of ways, a very clean sword and sorcery barbarian protagonist, right? Yeah. He's a, he's a northerner. 
that seems to be a, a term. <laughs> He's, yep. He uh, is of uh, darker hair and, and darker complexion. He is oftentimes compared to an animal. Here he's the hawk, mm-hmm. uh, the way that he's depicted. So Havor the hawk, uh, he's an orphan. A destitute background, he's yeah. no strings attached. Yep. Bro's just on the, on the lamb. He right. becomes a mercenary for hire. And this is kind of his story. Like, I love that... With very little fanfare, uh, Lee basically invokes the most classic of like SNS right. uh, protagonists. <laughs> can I can I ask you a leading question about this? Yeah, because we're about to compare him to to Felice. Yeah, right. Uh, who seems to be on the on the exterior the paragon of civilization? Right, coiffed hair, kind of a blondie. Yep. Uh, nice clothes. I think is what it is described as seemingly. Well mannered, uh, like knows how to who, to talk, right? But uh, is decrepit and broken on the inside. Yeah, so, he's, he's unlawful, right? Like he's yeah, he's he is absolutely amoral and doesn't have any problems. Like, do we? Like he he's not oath bound in any respect. <laughs> no. Though he, no. he he does what he like. He's, he has as, no no on him. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Does this remind you of any Robert E. Howard quotes? Any Conan quotes? I mean, I, I can't help but think about, uh, you know, civilized tongues and, and, and the lack thereof, right? Right. The whole thing about, like, you you people from civilization, you don't have your skull split in half as a rule because people won't do it. or I don't, yeah. I don't remember yeah. the exact quote, but it, it I don't know. For me, Tanith Lee so far has really evoked some of the spirit I, of Robert E. I, I, I very much I, – I think so too, man. And so the the – the sacking of the city mm-hmm. that happens in the first chapter or so there's allusions to it and very grisly allusions to it. Uh, but we kind of move past that type of action and it's all about establishing the interactions between characters. Right. Mm-hmm. And I said this in the, the end of the last, I'm pointing behind my shoulder, <laughs> like, <laughs> like the, the Gothic back road is just, like, road, yeah. just right back behind us. Uh, and I always come back to this. I don't know why I like stories that have such clean little moral cogs that sort of clink together. Like if you give me five or six characters that have these various moral positionings and you throw them into a room and they're sort of like warring with one another. I just mm-hmm. I just love that's my favorite kind of story, I think. You want everything like reservoir dogs. I do yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that that typifies it, right? Yeah, like yeah. you put everybody into a room and all hell breaks loose and there's reckonings on all fronts. I love to see the cogs sort of clinking against one another. And to me, the two characters here, uh Havor and, and Feluche are are very much in opposition to one another. And this is, it, it becomes this morality play like throughout the, the initial uh, chapters. Like it starts with this, you get a little bit of world building, right? Like there's this arch That's a horrible, uh, sinister magician. Mm-hmm. It's clearly SNS because the magic is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like magic's not good. Uh, you might have clerics that are doing scrivings and right. and sort of blessing the the warriors before they go out. But, but sword, good. Yeah, sword <laughs> sword good and art archmagus bad. Uh, and so you get that kind of positioning, and then 
we kind of move past it, and then it very quickly becomes this character study. And then, of course, you get an end scene. You're just hitting all the high points. They go down, they do a dungeon delve, and then they're out on the road. I mean, holy shit, this is a this is a, a this is a D and D adventure. It is. Yeah, it is. It's so much, but it's so good, and it's not artificial. It's not contrived. Mm. What if we add as a spice the uh, little bit of religion that we get in this world? What are the things that we know? We know that the the priests are uh, very austere. They they live a very barren sort of life. Um, they are not afraid to beat <laughs> the the children that you know find right. themselves living there because they're orphans or whatever. Um, and their symbol is a circle, right? And I, uh, you know, w- we all know that the circle, the ring, is a very powerful symbol that means a lot of different things. Um, how did you guys take the the symbology and the religion that we get as little as as we get of it? How did you sort of uh, how did that strike you? It struck me as very lived in, like like there's just enough there that's powerful enough and mythic enough that it's that it's real and believable, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of over explanation. Like that's 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 just whenever I've read this story. So this is the second time through, and I I read it once the whole way through a, a while back, like months and months ago, and then we kind of decided this the, the season, and now I'm about the halfway mark for this story. So I've read it the second time through, but that first time, I very much found myself thinking like, man, this gives me the same feels of the religion and the world of again like Martin's like a song of ice and fire. Mm-hmm. It has that sort of, there's enough broad strokes there that everything seems real enough. And there's enough comparisons to what I would accept as like historical, uh, you know, real world settings, but there's not any more than I need to know. My mind just sort of wanders. Yeah. And so on the religion front, it's scary, right? Like, I don't know what that religion is, but man, they're, uh, they're <laughs> they're hard, yeah. you know. I don't. I'm I'm spacing on the the appropriate word to use here, but uh, they're severe. Yeah, severe what, is what a thing, John. I would say it's dichotomous, but lives in a gray world. Okay. Like you're very you're you're clearly led to believe. Okay, like these guys over here with the circle, they're the good ones because they're with the king, and then we've got the archmagus and his family who are bad because they're doing bad stuff and they live in a dark tower. And all of this just seems very convenient, I guess, in the end, because then you get some some good old war crimes, right? Like, let's go and rape and pillage a city and burn everything and take everything in the name of our good side uh, against their bad side. We don't even know what it is that defines their badness. I mean, the evil chalice hints at some darker things, perhaps, <laughs> behind the throne. But at the point that we are in the story... It's all sort of a tool for the authority that is the king. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems very convenient for him to be able to wield religion sort of as his cudgel to put people in place. And like, you're his rival. Okay. Well, that means you're the devil. Like you, you are part of the devil. So let's, let's wipe you out. Yeah. Uh, cut you out. Yeah. yeah. See, it just seems very classic religion, it, right? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me. Like the, the whole, like the circle, there's no beginning or end to it, right? It's sure. just, you're, you're born, you live, you die. Perhaps you're born again. Like you're trapped in this, this, uh, cycle unending. Um, 
And something that struck me, and I think there's some reconciliation here between the religion and the politics, but I haven't been able to lock into it. Maybe once I finish the story, I can. But th- these people did not capture this city. They raised it, mm-hmm. right? They burned it. Yeah. Like, th- they they didn't liberate it. <laughs> no, <laughs> right? they destroyed it. And then ultimately Felucci is a, a son of a bitch with the way that he's talking about it, right? Like he's bragging and he's being uh, the consummate like butthole. Oh, to the innkeeper. Yes. To the yeah. innkeeper. Right. Uh, it is unapologetic. The kind of their like the position and, you know, our protagonist, uh, he's, He's not comfortable with it because he's an honorable man. He's a he's an honorable barbarian, right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's kind of his positioning of things. Yeah, I, I just think I wonder, like, so with within this world, was the archmage at one point an orphan due to a war, and he brought himself up into power and and turned to the dark arts, man. And and and, and it's going to happen again, right? Because. Uh, the king, whoever is in charge now, did the same thing. Or he worked again. for the king. Or, or that. Yeah. 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 Like, I would not be surprised if uh, the side that Havor at all are working for are, are, are ultimately the bad guys, right? Because it's not necessarily good and bad. It's mm-hmm. that gray area in bad, between. Bad and bad. Yeah. Bad and bad. <laughs> one, one sort of like spiritual position versus the other. I, I really love that. Because ultimately, that motivates the larger sort of cogs of the world in spin, right? So this is a world in turmoil. There's effectively this this countrywide world war going on. And that provides the backdrop for, like, uh, Havor and Feluche and uh, a pact and a, a, a bag of coins and this this cursed chalice and all of the shit that's going to go sideways, right? Mm -hmm. Like they are operating with their own moral considerations, but there's this, this larger gray moral world. I mean, it's set in a world like it's, it's setting your story in, in like in France in 1943 or, Mm. (laughs) or setting your story in, you know, uh, Kentucky and, in 1963 Unoccupied or 1863, Mor- like, Unoccupied yeah. Morocco yeah. during World War II. Yeah, like yeah. Okay, pick yeah. any sort of like like in between like liminal right. space. That's the that's the story. That's the placement. Is let's put this in the middle of a of a war zone. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It, and this is the last portion of their campaign, right? Like this is they they make mention once this is done, everything should be peaceful and. Well, it'll go back to yep. back cycle back around to normal. I don't know. I'm I'm just I was uh, kind of into the the ring slash circle symbology and and no, I think I think you're right to you point out kind of the the nature of of the world that's like the gray world that's being painted. Even further highlighted by their travel during the story, where I think Havor even comments they discover. Uh, this like stony spire on the road mm-hmm. and it's clearly abandoned. He says something like probably a watchtower from a King before the last King during his war. Uh, so it's all a cycle, you know, mm-hmm. until they find oil mm. under the next Archmagus's castle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Uh, so what do you make of the chalice so far, John? You, you and I haven't read it. Luke I haven't read it all. Luke, yeah, Luke, Luke may know some more, but you know, chalices have a lot of, of symbology, like the circle that you've talked about. Mm-hmm. They, they often hold blood or things that we refer to as blood, right? Uh, in order for the sacrifice to be collected. Mm-hmm. Like um, a grail. Like a grail, very much. Uh, the size is a little disconcerting, frankly. <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah. yeah, like that's that's a lot of potential blood, a lot of potential whatever is going to go in there. And it's it's alien, serpentine. Yeah. Uh, Sin- ancient, sinuous. Yeah. Seems, sinuous, yeah, maybe. Move. Yeah. yeah. Sinuous, maybe maybe the serpentine it, was my own little insertion well, I think, there. Well, I think that's yeah. what it's trying to yeah. get, what, what Tanith Lee is trying to get you to think about. Like it's, it is uh, snaky. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, it it's definitely got a creep factor, but it's also one of those things. The chalice is in our culture like the ultimate treasure. You've alluded to the Holy Grail, uh, the discovery of which would be amazing. So it has sort of a, a monetary value to us automatically. Like you know that a chalice is worth worth something. Mm-hmm. So them discovering this, I think, is very convenient for a greedy thief, a greedy bad guy and a man who wants to enrich a poor family who just lost their child soldier son. And if you look down at a chalice or, or any drinking vessel, uh, what is it? What does it appear to be? A circle. It's a circle. Right? Like, <laughs> oh, I see what you're doing there. I was going to say, I was going to be facetious and be like your face. It's a triangle. <laughs> looks like your mom. Jeez. Too many. But yeah, no, you're right. Uh, it is sort of fitting in with the symbols that you're you're throwing out. Yep, Josh, I'm making all this up of symbology, I'm making it up. I think I think he's tapping into the big the big myths of uh, of Tanith Lee. Big circle over here. The big circle. That's that's my name. So Felucci's kind of a kind of a bad guy. We we didn't really talk about him we in didn't. opposition. Let's, yeah, let's yeah, talk we, about him. Like we like uh Havor is a good guy. He's a noble barbarian. We've talked about kind of the motivating the incent the the inciting incident and then ultimately kind of the the points that are carrying the story forward. But how does we're we're pronouncing his name Felucci. Uh it just seems appropriate. Uh it's the easiest kind of kind of way it just rolls off the tongue, right? Like with within the within the tavern, within the inn, to me, he becomes uh he wasn't a brat to begin with, but he was like a second rate uh butthole. But in the end, he becomes a sinister sadist. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think about like like how that sort of plays out and sort of the the overall degree of badness for for Felucci like as the story's playing out through about the front half of the story? Yeah, he's always a pebble in your shoe at the start, clearly. Like he's annoying, he's gotta open his mouth all the time, and he graduates to full fledged torture device. Like he he is a serial like he could be a serial killer. He's one step away from that, it seems like. Uh it's creepy. It's creepy to watch him unfurl, I guess, and to become who he really is uh, on this journey. He's not liberated to do so, but almost enraged to do so, I guess. So he's like out on. He's out 
in the wild. Like yeah. he's he's out on the road. He's he's away from he's away from civilization. So it's mm-hmm. almost like his uh, true nature is is really shining through. Like right. this this cult, the so called air culture, like air 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 quotes cultured man for the snake to slither. Like out. becomes yeah he like the snake really does kind of manifest. I also think it's interesting. Havor has resigned his command in the army. Uh, Kashil is a thief. Nobody's going to miss him. This dude is, has committed AWOL, right? Like he, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like he's, well, and like he's due for a promotion probably, right? right? Like yeah. he, he yeah. might be next in line yeah. to be promoted to uh, the, the King's bear or whatever. Right. Yeah. He's, he is the absolute sort of like committed AWOL is not the way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, but he is absolutely uh, a bad person morally, and he is lacking of any sort of like ethics. Like he, he's right. just not grounded. He's not. He is not an honorable person by any stretch. And without the war to channel some of that into when you get him out on the outskirts like it's just all venom he's feral yeah yeah, he has gone feral he wants to wield his power at all of these townsfolk and let them know like listen is if i say that you're against the king i'm gonna do to you what i did to the town down the road like there's nothing stopping me right uh and you're all gonna listen to me no matter what so How, how much of this is due to what i perceive as the corrupting influence of the chalice that's a good question like i i like this notion of he's uh away from civilization and so he has to like out i don't know he has to overcompensate i guess um but i also wonder uh, is this another hint that the the chalice is corrupting him i like what you're saying, and I guess that the way that I thought about it, that's not a refutation of what you're saying, but is just my headspace, is that it's coming for them one at a time. Like, it's got an order that it's going to go. Okay, in. yeah. And I think that that would just be very nicely convenient for him, right? Got it. Yeah, okay, let him like, off the hook. Yeah, think? to be okay. like, yeah, yeah, no, is a chalice. Like, I'm, I'm a good guy. But really... I think he is supposed to be the contrast. Like, Havor's not going crazy. He's not doubling down on his personality because of the chalice. But on the other hand, Feluche, I think, is supposed to be the foil at this point to Kachil to be like, yeah, he's going crazy because of this cup, but he's going bad because he's civilization in the wild. And okay. He, he has no constraints anymore. Got it. That yeah. was my headspace. Okay. But, so... So he he's out there um, civilizing this land. Yeah, he's just bad. Like yeah. he's just a bad guy. Got it. Okay. Chalice be damned, and them all be damned. Right? Don't tell us. Oh. <laughs> yeah. There's no way they're all going to make it out of this alive. I don't. I don't. Oh, I'm pretty sure they're all going to end up at Lucan's farm. Everybody's going to have a happy ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all going to raise soybeans and edamame. Yeah? It's yeah. going to be like... <laughs> going to be... <laughs> it's going to be like Stardew edamame. Valley. They're going to go to this farm and they're going to turn things Stardew around. Absolutely, Stardew Valley. Uh, Tanith Lee wrote Stardew Valley. That's right. That was my, that was my next that lie was your thought. early on. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Good. Are we picking up on what you think Tanith Lee is laying down, Luke? Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is... I, I'm loving it. I have to say, uh, I love the Gothic Road, but... 
I'm loving this just as much because it's 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 shorter, it's punchy. We're kind of mowing through a lot of themes and topics here, and it's close to our hearts as far as the, <laughs> the like the story structure, yeah. right? Like it's mm. kind of moving along. Uh, no, this it, did feel familiar. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think it's because Howard salted his uh, adventure stories, his sword and sorcery stories with horror, right? Like yeah. uh, Zuthal of the Dusk has uh, Thog lurking its hallways and and we we have monsters at, at every at every turn in in those stories and they're they're spooky. Like think about the Solomon Kane uh was it the hills of the damned where all the vampires are are out there and and uh yeah they murder the village and he goes and murders them like the 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 horror adds to the fantasy i think and and that is something i think that is uh important for for good sword and sorcery at least for me like that's that's the the spice i like yeah i haven't felt this close to our our original patron saint robert e howard uh since the carl edward wagner season probably she seems to be nice his, man his yeah. ancestors right oh yeah but contemporary contemporaneous uh, she was contemporaneous at least for a little while yeah yeah uh yeah. i don't I, that, I, that's a good question yeah. we're gonna have to look into that because i would love to know what exchanges those two had yeah i wonder they, yeah i think they would be fascinating <laughs> Like just, I, yeah, I can't just imagine. knowing uh, one and then the other, like just the, the, in the briefest of tones for Tanith Lee, but uh, you know, biker jacket, like right. motorcycle club, hard drinking Carl Edward Wagner, you know, riding six foot four. He's a big dude yeah. and riding this kind of like uh, it wasn't macho sword and sorcery, but this very assertive, broody. Uh, existential gothic sword and sorcery and contrasting that with with Tanith Lee and she wasn't soft by any means no. like this story is that we're, that we're reading here is not soft but just a different kind of kind of angle i think that Tanith Lee's story here that we're reading is very true to like classic mm-hmm. sword and sorcery roots mm-hmm. uh and it recalls to me like the best of like like Paul Anderson and the Broken Sword, like it has this very like a chalice. It's this mythic item that's right. kind of up there. Mm-hmm. You have uh, the idyllic barbarian. You have this uh, uh, dastardly foil to to the to the man. Everything there seems I don't want to say Freudian, but very. Uh, returning to the cogs in the wheel Jungian. like like yeah Jungian, yes yeah Jungian classic uh moralistic positionings of the story mm-hmm. and I, I think it's i think it's beautiful it really do, it is resonant and i think it's it's classic in like the best senses it's not it's not throwbacky like she was writing this in what 75 or 76 i think i said mm-hmm. uh none of it's throwbacky it's just very intentional with its structure. Yeah. Uh, so we've talked about the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the, uh, <laughs> the ugly, the ugly, <laughs> who's, the ugly. who's, who are the other companions on the road? Who's, the who's pursuing? 
are oh that's a good point like a shape-shifting shadow thing with a yellow head uh, it's got a yellow hood right yellow hood yeah there's uh, three darkened riders that are in pursuit it's true we one know, with a yellow hood we know that we have murdered three people that were in charge of the citadel the archmages his wife and daughter right so were the, you think they were sealing this thing away? And I don't know. It just seems like it can't be destroyed. Yeah, it's three yeah. and then three and then three. Yeah. It's, it's huh. plays and plays and plays on words and, nope. and the story structure. Nope. Yeah. So who are the companions on the road? That's a question to think about. Oh my god! As we move along into the the yeah, next the warping, next phase of our discussion. <laughs> You're frying my gourd, bro. <laughs> my brain on drugs. <laughs> Um, I wanted to, uh, circle back around to something we said like an hour ago. Um, (laughs) man. So, uh, you said, what is the female version of Minch? And I Googled that, uh, in German Minch means generic man as in human being in Martin Luther, in Martin Luther's translation of the Bible. God did not create man, but den mention a gender neutral being. And the rest of the Bible goes on to use Minch when speaking of man, woman, and child combined. Dude, I love it. Isn't that, isn't that cool? So, uh, Tanith Lee is a, is a it's, sword and sorcery Minch. It's the ultimate pronoun. Oh, we're going to bring that. Crom- Minch. Comrade, gone. Yeah, Minch. Minch. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing. We're uh, going to keep Comrade, but but we're going to blend in Minch because I like that word. I like, I like the the ethical connotation of it, like what it kind of gets across. Like, yeah. LP wraps with it really well too. He does. Yeah. I was looking at a couple of the other, some of the other, uh, excuse me, uh, British fantasy award winners, uh, for best novel. Um, and some of the, the awards went to Michael Moorcock, Paul Anderson for Rolf Crocky's saga. Mm-hmm. um, Gordon Dixon, the the dragon and the George, is what it says. Uh, Piers Anthony, who's a, a powerhouse. Um, Stephen R. Donaldson for the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, the Unbeliever, which I still haven't read. Um, and then we have Death's Master, which is what Tanith Lee was recognized for. And then two years after that, uh, the, the next year is uh, Ramsey Campbell, To Wake the Dead, and then Cujo by Stephen King. So, like, I, I feel as though... This award going to Tanith at that point in time is huge. I think so. I mean, I don't know. Like, there are a wide, there's a wide breadth of women that have written horror through the 70s and the 80s. But it's not a, a total laundry list where you can just start ticking off names after names after names. Yeah. No, not yeah. like that. Like that list of of male sci-fi, yeah, fantasy, it's, and horror. It's four, like to, it's four to one. It's five to one. It's something yeah. like that. There's there is a clear issue of representation there. Yeah, and she was absolutely uh, like fearsome in her writing mm-hmm. from everything that I've read, and fearless. I think with her her ability to just sort of get material out there. So, yeah, I think she's – I'm glad we're talking about her because in our second season <laughs> way back when in, what, 2014, 2015, you know, we talked about, like, 
like Howardian heroines, and then we mm-hmm. kind of delved into like CL Moore and that kind of stuff. That was the stuff that was kind of like the next generation past Howard. Mm-hmm. But we haven't talked about somebody that's more more recent. We haven't dedicated a season to like uh, Jessica Amanda, Amanda Salmonson, yeah, uh, or uh, you know any contemporary sword and sorcery. Uh, women either on the page or authored by. Yeah. Uh, so this is cool to be able to dedicate, like, I don't know, we're spending an hour to two on this recording. We're going to do four-ish of them. I mean, we're going to give some time to it. Like, we'll be able to talk about this uh, author for for a solid seven to ten hours, which I'm super stoked about. And, and frankly, somebody could start a podcast just about her body of work. Oh, absolutely, man. Yeah. Uh, I'm stoked. Uh, I have slew, like two or three of her different uh, series, and I haven't even like touched them. There's mm-hmm. just so much that's there. Uh, so my hope for my next one thing is to actually get into uh, Knight's Master, which is Tales from the Flat Earth, which is her big – like that's the thing she won the the, the Durla Award for mm-hmm. uh, and give it a go and be able to kind of report back. So I'm going to try to get into the, the Tanith Lee headspace over the next couple weeks. Was that the Flat Earth stuff? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And there's, there's a whole slew. There's like five – I guess there's five books total. Uh, but Knights Masters is the first one. Knights Master, singular. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she has just tons of tons of books that are out there. So mm-hmm. much good stuff. I'm excited to finish this story on our next episode, though. I like it. Yeah. You digging it, dude? I'm digging it so far. Yeah, yeah. And I was I, like, always. It's always great when we get to dive into it as a group and combine our three brains into one. Huh? So, until then, where can people find us on the web, Josh? Find us on the web at thechromecast.blogspot.com. We're on the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you name it. We're there. Uh, You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 859-429-CROM. Or you can email us, thechromecast at gmail.com. Go out there, get some Tanith Lee. Luke can tell you where to buy it on A-Books. Luke's got all the uh, the alerts set up. He so knows, he knows all in the morning. Books. In the morning, when he makes his coffee and and eats his biscuits and, and gravy, he goes. <laughs> he looks at his uh, he looks at his phone and goes, "Oh, here's a Carl Edward Wagner book." A book says frequently accused him of being a bot. I'll be hey, honest. Luke is a bot. Luke, Luke's a bot. I'll be He's honest. That's not too far from the truth. Except <laughs> I don't have an alert set up. It's just like while the coffee's brewing or. While the biscuits are in the oven, or you've got while the I'm, algorithm you run. Like while I'm sitting on the on the the toilet, I just quickly I have a books bookmarked and I just type in Carl Edward Wagner, right. Tanith Lee, Manly Wade Wellman, like any number of authors mm-hmm. that I'm kind of kind of keeping an eye on. Mm-hmm. And what did you buy ours at on a books? Uh, so all of ours, they were all under six six bucks. So think a about deal. it. Quite a deal. Get like, on there. Yeah. Um, and Luke keyed me into um, the the Dark Crusade by mm-hmm. uh, Carl Edward Wagner that I didn't have a copy of. Um, and I scored that for like $7. If you're persistent, dude, I should, um, I sent you guys the, the Manly Wade Willman mm-hmm. <laughs> a, yeah. a weirdo paperback or like hardback that I got. I don't, I don't know what, it's, what the thing's worth. It's... 
it's it's water stained. It's a first edition of a book that's never been reprinted. I don't know if it was in perfect condition, a couple hundred bucks, but what's it worth if it's not in perfect condition, but totally if, if readable? If it's water stained and there are only 300 copies of it? Uh, I don't, yeah. And I got I it for know. like four or five bucks. But if you are diligent, if you just hop on thrift books and a books and keep an eye out, you can find some good stuff, man. Mm. That's your um, homework assignment before our next episode so that you can join us in appreciating... Stay, no, don't go. Stay, don't go. Out, stay, of my, stay out of my hunting grounds. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. I'm going to be out there. I'm go, go to half price. Stay, <laughs> stay so, away. Suddenly we're not companions on the road anymore. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's that's where you can find us on the web. And uh, in just a, a few short weeks, we'll be right back here on the mics talking about the second half of Companions on the Road finishing this story, and maybe even beginning the next one. I love it, dude. Yeah, man. Nice. And we love you all. We love you. 40%. Oh. Big hugs. I don't know where the 40% comes from. <laughs> I stole it from behind the bastards. <laughs> oh, 40% love? He says something like, I love 40% of you. Oh, well, that's probably fair. Yeah. I love you 3,000. Yeah. Lo- there you go, Iron Man. Yeah. <laughs> These three dudes. Hundo P's. Hundo P's. Falling stranger Traveling through This world alone I'm just going Over Jordan I am just going Over home I know dark clouds Will gather on me But golden stars
accomplished any true task put before me yet. Still not shall lose my bandit hand. Make a saw yarn of it. I'm going Is it Vecna is the name of the... Vinca. Vinca. I did pronounce it as Vecna a lot in my head as I was reading, but it's Vinca.